Good morning, DFW. You're listening and watching to the Dallas-Fort Worth Business Podcast. I'm Aaron Spatz. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you had a terrific weekend. Yeah, this is the business podcast for DFW, and I'm excited as the show features business executives, leaders across the Metroplex. And it's all designed to bring you stories to help fuel your drive, your passion, all the things that you're working on in a way, hopefully, that we're doing and is entertaining educating, inspiring you. Uh, any one of those is a win. All three of them is amazing. Uh, but I would love for you to join in on the conversation. So if there are if there are episodes, if there are guests that you're just absolutely love to hear from, if there are guests that you'd love to hear from in the future, drop me a line at podcast at boldmedia.us. Would love, love, love your feedback. It's always been a true delight. And today is a, is a true delight. So we have Sam Smith joining us this morning. Sam has been a really, really busy guy covering a wide variety of industry, but specifically as it relates to venture capital, investment banking, and all things in between. I will ask a ton of questions and let him do what he does. So Sam, I just want to welcome you to the show, man. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For sure, for sure. So I love to lead off with with the obvious question is, are you a DFW native? And if not, where are you from? No, actually, I'm not. I moved down here, I guess, in about 1995. Okay. So, uh, you know, with 25 years under my belt, I like to consider myself a native, but uh, I guess... Uh, naturalized citizen. Tell me. I'm sorry, go ahead. You're a naturalized citizen. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard that if you... Uh, you uh, Stop at the airport, DFW, you become a Texan. So, yeah, I exceeded that by far. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we'll close. So, where where are you from originally? Then, I grew up in the Quad Cities, right on the uh, the Mississippi River, okay. Iowa, and Illinois. Okay, nice. Okay, and then just you, as the saying goes, got here as fast as you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I was uh, I was playing a little bit of uh, ball in college and. North Texas was getting pretty aggressive with their program, so I came down here to to join them, but uh, got derailed. There's a lot of good things happening in Texas uh, beyond football, so uh, that was part of the reason for the move, but uh, uh, found interest in a lot of other things while I was here. F- football got derailed. What, what's that all about? Oh, it's just uh, that's me coming down here and uh, and seeing uh, Dallas and Texas and everything it had to offer, and uh, I gotcha. had to take a back seat. Oh, okay. No, I got you. I got you. So then, so then you jumped right into the world of venture capital, venture banking. So for those of us that are not nearly as astute in this subject, like give us a quick 30,000 foot overview of like some of the first things that you did and and what that industry revolves around. Well, I'll I'll tell you, it's, it is a complex industry and I think that's why it keeps my interest. Yeah. <laughs> over about 20 years, you know, every day I still learn new things or new problems and new issues to resolve. But uh, like like most folks who who enter this industry, you, you get a foothold somewhere. And I started off on the phone just uh, smiling and dialing and calling folks to generate interest in, in projects for another firm. Okay. And we started off with oil and gas, of all things. It was uh, about 2001. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the, the, the oil and gas industry is always, you know, is always has its ups and downs. I, I lived in Houston for a number of years and, and got to, got to see a little bit of that firsthand, the, uh, the crazy mad rush that can be. And then all of a sudden things are drying up and shoot. I mean, things are, things are slow and things have slowed down dramatically down there. Um, so like what, when, when you came in, cause I, I wasn't in it, I wasn't in the industry at that time, but you know, were, were things just on fire, really busy, or were things kind of slow? Like, what was the, what, yeah, yeah, was it was, the right? 
it was, it was all about natural gas at that time. I think we were sitting about nine or ten dollars, and um, mm. I think we were working a project in the Austin Chalks at that point, and it was all about chasing that gas. Dang. So yeah, it was hot. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Well then let, let's, let's take a quick walk through with your career. So you've, you've done a number of things from being a venture analyst to, you know, senior investment banker. You've been, you've, you've dealt a lot with the uh, M and a side of things. So, so help, help those of us understand that, that aren't as versed in, in this space. So like what, what's going on behind the scenes during, during something such as a merger or an acquisition? Like what are, what are people like you doing? My goodness. Well, it really depends. There are so many chaotic factors that come into play. Uh, you know, it's it's about the market. You know, it's about the the industry. It's about uh, policy and legislation coming down the pipe. There's so many variables. I mean, something as simple as uh, one of the executives or board members for a company involved in, in an M and A transaction getting up on the wrong side of the bed. Jeez. I mean, there, there's a, a lot of managing attitudes, managing expectations, and there's a lot that goes into it just to bring it to the table for presentation to you know a venture group or an i bank or even just uh you know uh, private equity so a lot of moving pieces uh to some extent some herding cats but uh uh you really have to be clear on the objectives and the stepping stones to get there because it is a complex industry well is it one of those things that starts off where you've got a company that is wanting to buy another company or you got another company that is wanting to maybe s- sell itself off to, to someone else like how, do, how does that normally get Get kicked off. Yeah, that's that's kind of what makes it all exciting is uh, yeah. it, it'll come down the pipe 20 different ways. Uh, a lot of what we've been doing recently is uh, with SPAC madness going on right now is identifying companies that are uh, maybe not reaching their potential okay. uh, just because they're, they're more of an organic operating type company and they built it from scratch and they've moved it forward. But for them to really accelerate, they need to see those capital infusions or repositioning or restructuring. So we've actually been going out looking uh, more proactively for companies to, to engage. Wow. So like what's a, uh, so I'm, I'll, I mean, I'll give you like, give you, give you the floor for a quick sales pitch here, but like what, what is like the, what's the ideal company that you guys are chasing right now? Uh, well, because uh, as much as you try to cookie cutter investment banking, uh, every deal is just so incredibly different. Okay. So there, there are two keys that uh, we consider. One, is the business scalable? Can this really take a bite of market share? Can it open a new market? Uh, is it something that could actually function on the public market is what we look at. And number two is the management. How qualified is the management? Because we could have a great plan. We could identify all the metrics necessary to evaluate it properly and know that it's going to be successful in the market. But without the appropriate management team, it won't get there. So those so- are the two. Uh, no, sorry. I like you. You've brought up a great point, and I've read I've read this in countless other statements. I've seen this time and time and again, which is you know, having to evaluate the management team. And so, what like how how is that most effectively done? Because there's there's a lot of the tangible. There's a lot of the like the hard track record stuff that's easy, right? That's like the easy part yeah. of it. But like all the intangible stuff, like man this guy is an absolute jerk or this person is a freaking rock star. They like, you know, they, they treat their people so well. Like, so how, how do you go about understanding that piece of it? Well, the, the easiest is the, uh, what you just identified, you know, the more tangible component. Yeah, We can look at a resume and say, okay, uh, the acumen exists. Okay. The industry experience exists. 
And, you know, oftentimes we uncover, well, this is an important feature to running a public company that maybe is just left by the wayside because it is pertinent to the operations. But those intangibles uh, are more difficult. This is where, you know, experience in investment banking, venture capital really comes into play. Is a resume can look great, but about the time you get uh, uh, the board on the phone, or the CEO, the CFO, exactly. you can typically tell right away uh, if they're out of their depths or not. Okay. And if they are, it's not necessarily a killer. But then it goes back to you know the pre-conversation we just had. You know, with football, is are they coachable? I mean, will they listen to direction? Can they can they comprehend these steps? But if that resume is solid, they can comprehend it. They just have to have the right attitude about getting forward and what it takes to you know really build a large scale endeavor. Gotcha. Yeah. The uh, you know calling references and calling people that they work with or people that they've that they've previously had any type of affiliation with can can oftentimes like really really paint a paint a much clearer picture to help fill in all those. Uh, all, all those missing pieces, which is, which is, which is always fun, right? Oh yeah. That, that network makes a big difference too with uh, social media and, you know, uh, just the data and information that's available on people. It's clearly different than it was 20 years ago, but just the same, you know, uh, with all of that supporting information, you, you've really got to spend some time with them and, and get a feel for who they are. And it's going to be a fit because it's, it's a, it's a different engagement when you're talking about, public markets are introducing investors and it is just uh, running operations and growing organically. So the, the companies that you're working with, are you, are you taking, are you putting them on a path where they where they are going to become a public company or are they, or is it all you know, private to public or is it private and they're going to remain private companies? Again, I know I, I'm not looking for a cookie cutter answer because I know like <laughs> this is pro- this is the answer I'm expecting to get right now is it depends. And I, I totally get yep. that. But is there, is there a, is there a trend that you, that you prefer, I guess. See, this, is, this is why you have to love America. Because it's nothing but opportunity. Every day, there's something new. Every single day, yeah. there's something new. But for us, uh, we're, we're kind of kids in a candy store because we can find a solution for just about everything. If it's got the management. If it's scalable, we can figure out how to best position it and uh, calendar all the efforts so they, they're executed and so the company is properly positioned. Uh, at the same time, uh <laughs> Having that expertise can be dangerous because you're going to burn a lot of time and maybe step outside of your your box, so to speak, because you're you're so interested in a deal or a company that um, time isn't best spent. So what we try to do is focus on those companies that that are private, that do have something that is scalable and that could function as a public company. So for us, yeah, we we're looking for companies to move to the market more than anything else. I see. Uh, make it makes sense. So, so you're, so you've currently got your hands in a few different things. So you're, you're, uh, I'm looking at your LinkedIn. So yeah, you're managing director at, at various, and then you're CEO at United Energy Corporation and managing director of seven P capital. So take, take us on a quick tour of those things. Uh, well, the, uh, the, the lengthiest explanation would be on uh manager at various is I do have my, my hands in a few different companies, you know, uh, different support roles or even just, back office others where i'm i'm advising on their growth plans okay. or uh capital raise or uh some of them are just going concerns that uh have taken life of their own and i'm fortunate enough to participate the uh what was the second one you had there 
I'm just curious about your, so what's, what's the story with the United uh, Energy Corporation? Oh, United Energy, that's, uh, that's been a fun one because uh, clearly we're focused on oil and gas and that. And uh, I guess we, we've had uh, a good number of assets that have been sitting on the private side. And in 2019, there's some pretty serious flooding in Oklahoma that took out a lot of our production. Oh, wow. uh, got done with that. Yeah, that was a good time. I uh, got done with that and did some cleanup and some repair work and uh, said, you know what, let's go ahead and reposition this to bring in some some capital, build out the assets and take a look at some other other direction. And we went ahead and picked up United Energy off the public market and we merged assets into that. And about the time we were taking some shape, we had a COVID hit 2020 and we saw a negative $38 oil. So we've just been really just biding time. We've got a great shareholder base. They've been just kind of sitting still, waiting for something. And we'll see what's going to come down the pipe here in the next uh, next month or two. Yeah. These prices look like they're starting to stabilize. They're on the rise. But, you know, we thought that for the last few years that they were stabilizing. And lo and behold, you hit negative 38. So that's that's UNRG. And the other one is uh, 7P is where I, I spend the vast majority of my time. I have two partners that are. Uh, very well versed in different aspects of investment banking, and we work as a trio on uh, some of the target companies uh, to capitalize them and move them toward the public market. And being industry agnostic, uh, I'll tell you, we <laughs> we see everything from you know technology to oil and gas to real estate to you know even just um, pure purely financial businesses. In fact, uh, had one that was pretty interesting. It was a uh, um, what do they call it? It's a virtual bank. Virtual bank. Virtual okay. bank. Yeah. I, I guess everybody's fed up with uh, walking into the brick and mortars and having to schedule an appointment. So uh, I think there might be an opportunity there, but that one's early. Wow. Wow. So, well, I mean, there's so, there's so many different directions that I want to go with this real quick, but like, and I mean, we have, we have time. So sure. when, it, when it comes, so when it comes to this market specifically, or a lot of the work that you're doing, is it, is a lot of it focused in specifically on the DFW Metroplex? This is a nationwide focus. Yeah, you know, we actually get a lot of inquiries uh, internationally. Okay, and we we there are some that we would like to engage, and we have had conversations with several of them about uh, making home base the U.S. Uh, for a number of reasons, but primarily because we're most familiar with the U.S. markets. And in all honesty, globally, this is. Uh, this is the capital market, the U.S. Uh, there are others that are uh, significant, but the U.S. is where you go to raise capital. In the U.S., though, uh, we get a good number of inquiries from you know coast to coast, okay. uh, various industries and such. And you know, I'd like to do more in Dallas. In fact, I've been uh, working more recently here on developing the network because there's so many great people, professionals. We share the same culture. You know, we'll talk about business for 20 minutes and football for an hour. Uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's, uh, a peer group that I'd like to develop further, but we'd like to do more Dallas. We focus primarily U S though. Oh, okay. Okay. Well then, so when it comes, when it comes to putting, putting a deal together and you're, you're evaluating, uh, like, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the discussion or the point that you made a few minutes ago. So you're taking, you're taking a company that has had organic growth and they're just kind of chugging along and they're doing fine, but you mentioned you know, capital infusion and helping really hypercharge our growth. So, you know, what are what I mean, it's a very obvious outcome. So, like if you've got enough capital, you got enough resources behind a company, 
you can help rapidly scale that company versus just the organic year over year growth and they'll and they can eventually get there. So what 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 have you found to be the marks of a successful company in terms of being able to go from the you know the the year in year out slow organic growth to to properly executing a plan that helps you when it comes well, to capital. If you had my partners on the line, uh, you'd probably end up with a, a bit of an argument. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. Uh, we, we approach things a little bit different. I'm I'm an M&A guy. I'm more traditional real estate, oil and gas, manufacturing, some entertainment, things like this. So for me, uh, the counterpart to organic growth is growth by acquisition or roll-ups. You know, we look for like-kind or similar businesses that can be integrated and see okay. if we can improve the efficiencies. That's my strategy. Well, you know, a couple of my peers, uh, they're going to dive deep on the inside of the company to try and find additional revenues or additional burn to operate that business more efficiently to see if they can improve the organic growth and make that uh, move a little bit faster. So I'm a roll-up, Scott. Uh, I think you find like kind of business and acquire it. So if you are a small business, let's say you run a, I don't know, a, a steel fabrication company in North, in North Texas, and you're wanting to grow this thing. I mean, there's a ton of industrial companies out there, but if you're, let's say you're trying to grow, you're trying to grow and scale that you're, so you're saying your strategy for growth would then be to go identify, you know, other steel manufacturers or, or, or fabricators rather either in our market or where, where, whatever the target happens to be, but you're trying to realize some efficiency gains by bringing more assets under management. Is that right? Yeah. And, and off the cuff, that, that argument that I mentioned is uh, I might have one of my peers who say, you know, there's no way we can effectively uh, produce or manufacture steel in the U S. And of course it depends on the specific niche that uh, that company operates within. Sure. But uh, that's where the argument would come on that side for me, you know, I'm going to view it just as I stated that, okay, well, it's a roll up. So can we find the light kinds and introduce them? But then again, as you, you dive a little bit deeper into the deal, well, it's, it's not a terribly portable business. Now we're considering operations of the same type in two geographically different locations. Sure. You know, do we integrate these? You know, what, what kind of equipment do we have to move if we want to integrate? We're going to lose some of our trade routes. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are, are going to be evaluated, but yeah, I still stand by the roll-up. Nice. Well, what's been one of the most interesting roll-ups that you've worked on? Uh, we've got one right now that we're we're trying to push through. And in fact, uh, uh, later this morning, I'll, I'll complete the uh, the deal sheet to share with one of our partners here in Dallas. But uh, they're working on broadband roll-up okay. uh, for underserved markets, which has a, a social capital aspect to it. But quite honestly, it's good business just because there, there aren't any competitors at the moment. And... Uh, uh, there's a lot of market out there that's underserved, but, uh, what, what's funny is how little I know about broadband, but how much I understand the roll-up method and how those metrics should look. So like, what, what do you, what are you looking for then? And uh, like, I just, I'd love to understand more of the roll-up process. Cause it's, oh. I've, I've heard of it. I've seen it happen previously, but like, what are from, from your perspective, like, what are the things that you're taking into consideration during, during a roll-up? Well, with this deal in particular, uh, the cornerstone is while the market is underserved, it is served. Okay. And it's a matter of how efficiently they're served. The majority of the operators in this space are small mom and pop businesses. They've done pretty well. 
some of them have aged in the last 20 years as, uh, you know, broadband and telecommunications became more of a necessity of life. Uh, so these mom and pops are sitting there, and quite honestly, if they were following the traditional business model, then they're going to look for a local buyer. Well, in smaller, underserved markets, buyers are further in between. So a larger group to come in and take that over and operate in that space and realize some of the efficiencies in having mass holdings uh, would certainly be a benefit. Nice. Well, like when it when it comes to putting when it comes to putting one of these deals together, and you're you know, you're working, and we'll just we'll just stay parked on on the roll up on the roll up side of this. So, if if you're a company that is looking to acquire other companies, you're trying to get this growth going. How does that how does that journey start for them? So, are they are they focused in on their own operations and they reach out? Like, are they literally reaching out to your firm just cold and have and have that conversation? Yeah, sometimes they are. Sometimes it's just a, a cold touch. Sometimes it's a friend of a friend or a network or, you know, any variety these days. You know, it's not uh, receiving a letter in the mail anymore. So we'll we'll receive communication 20 different ways. But uh, when we when we take a look at or consider this company, it goes back to the same two things. Are they scalable? Do they have the management? We start our assessment from there. And obviously we go into industry and market and timing and competition and all these other factors, but you know the the bottom line for us is is those two items: management yeah. and scalability. And then from there, you are taking then a, a pool of funds from an investor base or from some some other outside source and using that to help inject capital in into the business. Yeah, it's uh, it, it depends. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna get tired of hearing that from me. Um, it depends because uh, we have a deal right now that uh, they're really under the gun. They're they're short on time. And they're they're a little scattered, but they have a, a debt obligation that's coming due. And we're taking a look at it. We're making considerations for a capital raise or, you know, bringing in a VC or some form of equity. And they just don't have the time for their story to get out there. So we said, well, let's go ahead and consider this another way. Because of the position they're in where they only have that debt and that debt is collateralized, it's backed by actual profitable operations to guys now let's step away from equity for the moment let's solve the problem with with a debt position and then we'll handle the restructure from there nice no it's 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 fascinating there's just there's so there's so much here and what i what i want to do is take a step back so when we come back from break what i what i would like to do is understand it for those that are curious more about getting into this business so like they're wanting to if they're wanting to apprentice in in some type of M and A company, how they go about doing it? So we'll we'll cover that here just in just one second. So this, this show is made possible by our amazing sponsors, and I just want a huge shout out to R D Adair Law, that fantastic uh, business business attorney. So if you have any any business needs, so if your company needs solid legal help, I, I would solidly point you to these guys. So if it's from disputes. If you got litigation, you're trying to form a company, there's a transaction, there's or there's any number of things in between, right? There's all sorts of crazy stuff that happens in in the in the world of business. You're gonna need someone that you can partner with, uh, that you can trust. I would I would definitely definitely point you to Ryan in in his in his firm. Solid people, they'll shoot you straight. They'll they'll take they'll take great care of you. So I, I'd encourage you to reach out and see how they can help uh, meet your business legal needs. So. 
So Sam, one, I'm just I'm try I'm trying to understand more. I mean, I, I have I have a cursory level understanding of of what it is you do, but it's like I mean, we're talking surface scratch level, and, and your your knowledge base goes miles and miles deep. So forgive my incredibly stupid questions, but I'm just I'm just genuinely genuinely curious though. Like for those that want to, if they were wanting to kind of shadow your career, right? If someone was wanting to try to following your footsteps one how where would they start and then b what advice do you have for people that are that are just getting into the game so uh this might be helpful here is uh we've actually been uh uh going through the interview process and looked to hire a couple of uh potentially associate investment bankers okay but uh you know you're, you're not wrong in uh any of the statements you just made because it's it's a complex industry and there are many you know, facets, features, and, and components, and areas of practice that uh, is, it's a very generic term. But we've been working to uh, hire an associate, and we posted for an associate investment banker. And we got some fantastic resumes, you know, from, from some of the top firms and had some great conversations with very experienced people. But for us, for us, investment banking, uh, you've got to be able to cover, cover two. Um, what should I say? Uh, you have to have two characteristics that are absolute key to doing this. One is the the academic acumen. You, you have to have some level of training in the analytics, so you can review financial statements, so you can take a look at the market, so you can understand, you know, kind of what's going on around you. Now, you don't have to have all the answers because I've got twenty years in, and I still rely on two other peers who have another twenty years in the industry. No one person is going to have all the answers, but you have to be able to evaluate information and data. The other piece is you have to be able to sell a deal. And for me personally, uh, I'm not I'm not a pushy guy. Uh, I don't you know slap people around to, to get them to do anything. Uh, what I do is I illustrate you know to a ridiculous degree exactly what we're doing, how the pieces fit together, and really I guess it's called no place to hide because if it makes sense and there aren't any objections and then we typically uh, consummate the transaction. But with that being said, as I'm going through these resumes and such, I'm finding that I've got one or the other. I've got either the analytic ability or I have a sales professional. So for us, when we think of investment bank, and I put this out to several of the applicants, I said, in our eyes, an investment banker who's on the street and destitute, what he's going to do is he's going to find a deal. He's going to find something that makes sense that could be profitable because he's got that analytic ability and he's going to contract. He's going to negotiate. He's going to create understanding for that client company. And with that, he is then going to go sell the deal. So those are the two components that are absolute key. You have to be able to understand what you're talking about and you have to be able to sell what you're talking about. That's investment banking in our eyes. No, that's, that's, that's perfect. And so I think for me, I'll just speak to my own, preconceived ideas of how this works is realizing that there is a sales component to it. So my, my perception of, of the space has been, it's been, you know, completely, you know, 100%, you know, like analytics, right? The analytics drive all of this stuff. And you've got people that are, that are wanting to make something happen. And, and what I, what I picked up in the, in what you just said was either a you're you're having to go sell it to a group of investors, or maybe b you're having to sell it to another company, or c you're having to sell the own company on its own idea because maybe they're getting cold feet. Like, is there is is all of that true? All of it. 
Yeah, nice. every every call is a sale, and even even the chief executives we work with, uh, they're fantastic salesmen. They may not be selling the product, but they have to sell the idea. They have to sell somebody on why they should join their company. They have to sell a vendor on why they should do business with them. There's always a sale taking place. Wow. So then, so then what, what you're doing is you're, you know, you've identified that gap that you've, you've identified the opportunity you've done, you've done all the homework on it. So then as, as you said, just a few minutes ago, you're, you're going to go into, you know, painstaking detail to show them exactly every step of the process of, of what's going to happen and be like, okay, like, what are we waiting on? Like, what are we going to do? You know? And it's like kind of, kind of leading them into that. Yeah. And it's funny because it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, uh, you know, transparency has been, you know, one of our cornerstones is yeah. absolute understanding and clarity because what we don't want to do is end up on the phone, uh, discussing anxiety. We want everybody to have a clear picture of, of the steps we're taking, the movements we're making. The double-edged sword of it though, is this, it's complex. It, it, it isn't simple. It isn't something where you just make a list and there's clear, clear understanding. So uh, we've had to scale back and we, we've kind of identified, you know, the, the key topics, key points and things that require a little bit more understanding. And because every client company and every investor is completely different, we give them enough information to process and then let them start asking questions more in particular in areas that they're curious or have better understanding to better grasp some of the movements that we we like to make what what do you find to be the most frequent threats to a deal going through oh gosh <laughs> no, getting up in the mornings one um <laughs> it, it it varies uh truthfully uh i go back to the same the same item it, it's that that management okay because you know management uh they'll have a concept for what needs to happen or how it needs to happen. And most of the time we don't question the operating side because they know their business. Right. Uh, a lot of times we can be more like consultants and point out some of the inefficiencies or, or some of the, the excess burn they've got so they can be a better operating company. But in general, we leave that part alone where a lot of the disconnect comes in is when that board of directors or that executive officer is trying to understand how they fit into the market because they're master of their own universe, but they are, <laughs> they're a blip on the screen in the global economy. So a lot of times when they're introduced to facts of the matter where they are and what steps they need to take to get where they want to go, a lot of times uh, there's a lot of handholding that has to take place, but that's probably about the greatest risk. Okay. Well, because there's a lot, uh, like, I'll, I'll just go there. So like, there's probably a lot of ego that you're dealing with too, right? So you you, you kind of hit it on the head where it's, these people have been very, you know, they've been, they've been very successful. That's why that's, that's probably why there's a conversation taking place. Like they've, they've done very well at what they do. They're used to being the subject matter expert for exactly what it is that they're doing or, or their own, their own little universe. And then you're bringing them into a place where they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're used to being a big fish in a smaller pond. And now they're just another fish in a, in a giant ocean and that, and that reality. And so, when that starts to set in and they're, and now they're kind of dependent on understanding more, more information, I can see where there may be a holdup or there may be you know, like, I mean, are like, are there times when just the, the emotions are just running like sky high and you're just, you're dealing, you're dealing with just a plethora of, of people's feelings, whether, whether it's good or bad. So uh, I'll say you're, you're correct. 
in in your assessment there is that if you recall early in the conversation it was the tangible and intangible review right. of those executive officers and that ego does tend to get in the way which is why that personal interaction is so important yeah. it's uh whether it's over the phone or in person being able to read is this someone who uh who's who's done it and when i say done it the most successful people I know or have worked with are very humble people because they appreciate while they may be Titans in their own right. uh, They're very small. Um, The. uh, I was going somewhere with that. I promise. Uh, Yeah. What was your, uh, your we're, we're talking about ego. We're talking about like, you know, what, what is that like for the, just the, the emotional roller coaster for some of these people as they're, as you're kind of going through some of these discussions where, yeah, that, that was kind of, that's kind of where we were. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, we like those humble people because you know, they've been burned, uh, they've stubbed their toe a few times. So, so they're on the lookout. They're very aware of what's going on. And when they're aware, they've got the, those heightened senses. So they listen a little bit closer. They look a little bit closer. And when we're introducing information to them, they're processing it with, a. uh, higher level of detail and those are the people who we're going to have less of an emotional roller coaster with i see uh we had a, a deal last year where we're quite honestly every time the wind blew uh this guy was upset and <laughs> that's almost no joke it, it took absolutely nothing for him to be bent out of shape and and worried and you know all of a sudden he's looking to, to blow things up he just he i don't know <laughs> we come across yeah. those once in a while but uh cornerstone to uh, the answer I'm providing to your question is humble. If we've got humble people, uh, then we can feed them information pretty easily. They'll process it, and they stay pretty, uh, pretty in tune with what we're doing. Yeah. Well, what's what's one of the big um, stereotypes of, of 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 your industry that you'd like to put down? So, like, I'm sure I'm sure there's all sorts of different preconceived notions, or you probably get the same typical questions from people who don't really know what you're doing. So like, what are, what are some of the, what, what are some of the more common misconceptions or, or myths? Well, I, I think one of the things about this industry that's overlooked is, uh, you know, how vast the industry actually is. Uh, there are a lot of small firms or a lot of independent investment banks. There are a lot of folks out there who are you know grinding every day to put deals together and help companies uh, move forward or improve or, or even, you know, regenerate. So uh, what I would say is uh, you, you can't uh, rely completely on the headlines for the industry, uh, everything that's happening, because for every billion-dollar deal, you know, there are $100 million, $100 million deals that took place as well. They're just not getting the headlines. So uh, a lot of hardworking people, uh, a lot of complexities, and like I said, a, a lot of different areas of the industry that really aren't reported on. So I would say just don't buy all the headlines. There's a yeah. lot of activity behind the scenes that's happening. And then are, are there things that people can do to better prepare themselves for a deal? So let's say your, your company, cause I'm sure, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've run into this where there's people that are, they're either, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to like kind of your, your lane when it comes to roll up. So you got people that are interested in exploring that as an option. Are there, are there things that people can, can do to better position themselves for that? Are there things that you, find yourself consistently telling people like, Hey, you know what, let's, let's hold off another year or three or like, are, are there, are there some common things that people can do to, 
to better get ready for those kinds of things? I'll, I'll give you the three items that are absolutely key. Financials, financials, financials. You got to have your books in order. Uh, you know, if we, if we identify an opportunity, you know, it's a, a small company, but they, they really have their hands on something special that we know it's going to take significant capital to move it forward. Then in all likelihood, we're going to have to go through an audit. Um, okay. Uh, like I said, we, we chase more the the public listing, the access to capital. If it's a significant number, they're going to have to go through an audit. And if all their financials are, are done on napkins and they've got piles of receipts and things like this, then they're not going to survive an audit. And those audits can get really pricey. So financials is absolutely 110% the cornerstone. Wow. And so, and when you're talking financials, you're talking specifically just, just like accurate record keeping. Is that, is, is, is that primarily what you're referring to? Well, it, it is accurate record keeping, uh, but you know, the, the class the strong financial account, position as well. Uh, that's ideal. Now right. we, we work with a lot of companies who don't have it just because they were positioned and structured wrong, but those are all okay. things that can be remedied, but the, those financials are really the history of the business. So P&Ls, balance sheets, all of those items, which are, you know, part of basic financials. And step one, step two is more into the record keeping. Because you may see uh, in the financials where they've been paying on a contract for three years. We need the contract as well. We need to see that because right. it'll be part of the audit. So see. record keeping and good old fashioned, traditional, complete financials. Complete. I, I, I like how you emphasize complete that, <laughs> that, that implies there's often incomplete financials. We've had people send us bank statements and say, these are our financials. Well, <laughs> not oh, quite. Man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it can be something, but, uh, I mean, if, if you want, I could get a banker box around here somewhere and I, and I could just make a whole bunch of stuff on napkins for you and just ship it to you as a, as a nice gag gift. Like, yeah, Hey man, here's my financials. <laughs> I've heard that joke too many times. <laughs> nice. Nice. The, uh, so going through the valuation process, what are, I imagine the, uh, I met, I imagine your financials answer is going to continue to ring. I'm going to sail right through this one as well. But when it comes to valuation, what are, what are, what are some common, again, I'm, I'll ask the same question, but I, I expect maybe slightly different outcome here, but what, what are, what are some common misconceptions that people have about the valuation process that you'd like to speak to? Oh, valuation actually is uh, fairly complex. Yeah. And uh, I'm less about building the valuation personally. So I <laughs> rely on my partners. Uh, I'm more about uh, review of the evaluation. Can it be justified? Is it reasonable? Um, you know, equipment, cash flows, and industry and the multiple and things like this all come into play. And we can come up with a valuation, but one thing we found is oftentimes it doesn't match with the uh, proprietor or CEO's perception of the company's value, uh, which gets to be a stumbling block. But there are several methods that are used. Uh, we deploy a few of them, and it's really about a meeting of the minds, what's reasonable. And quite honestly, we're going to know what's reasonable about the time we go to market the deal or the project, because investors are going to take a look at it. And a lot of them that we work with, are savvy in particular industries. And if it happens okay. to be an industry they know, they're going to point it out right away. They're going to say, no way. This isn't worth near what's being asked here. Wow. So there are, there are a lot of uh, checks and balances that just inherently take place in the process uh, to arrive at the appropriate valuation. Now, also one of the reasons why we're, we're big fans of the public market 
is because the same valuation we just discussed, you know, we can apply to a, a book value. So we know per share what the company is worth. Uh, but the market tells us more in particular what the company is worth. And there isn't a whole lot of arguing there. You know, if it's trading at a buck a share, if it's trading at 10 bucks a share in the share count, we know what the company is worth. I see. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I was going to ask another obvious question, but I mean, yeah. it, there's I, like, are, are there times where, you know, you, you have a valuation kind of sketched out as far as what, what you think it should be, but then, you know, you, you go to present that or, or you go to do a little bit more research and you realize, man, like we are way under here. Like there's actually like, you know, crazy demand for this and our assumptions based on multiples and, and all these other factors that, that come into play really, really aren't as relevant. And maybe in this particular instance, maybe it holds true, you know, 95 times out of a hundred, but you've got a couple of these cases that are outliers, relatively speaking. And it's like, man, you know, the valuation is what people are willing to pay for it. And that could be good or bad. Well, the, the outliers, uh, <laughs> they're pretty common these days. Uh, over the last, you know, 25 years since tech's really, you know, taken the lead on, uh, you know, what's considered to be uh, the attractive deal flow. Uh, speculating on how a new app or a new fiber line or, you know, medical device may perform is, you know, largely speculation. You know, what's it going to do a year from now, five years from now? And there's so many other chaotic factors like competition and legislation that enter into that equation that a lot of it's a best guess. And that's why, you know, you'll see a lot of these deals where they're, you know, they're raising a half billion dollars for a startup. That's crazy. You know, yeah, it, it is. You know, the, the school of thought I'm from, more the manufacturing, oil and gas, real estate, more traditional items. And we're talking about, you know, tangible assets. We're talking right. about cash flows. We're talking about operating history. We're talking about some level of forecast. So those valuations are just so much easier. But IP and technology, uh, yeah, it can get a little wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, but like going back to what you just said, like with, you know, real estate and oil, like they have such a track record. There's so much data. There's so much available to you that you can pull from to really like really refine and probably get to pretty dang close uh, number in terms of what, of what a company could be oh, yeah. worth. But then, yeah, I, it just, it, it baffles me because it baffles me when you see these companies come out of nowhere. I mean, it could be me, man. Like I could just, I could show up, have this have this bright, shiny new idea, but yeah, uh, I'm pitching you today. My company is worth $12 million. And it, some people would, would say like, wow, that's way too aggressive. You're, you're worth about five cents. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have other company, you have other people like, oh my gosh, that's a deal. Like I, th I think this company's worth $50 million. And like, where, where does, like, where does all that come from? Because it, to me, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like in those spaces, things that you just talked about, like technology and you know, intellectual property, some of these other items, tech, that there, there are not, there is not as much emphasis placed on. I mean, especially when it's just when it's just launching. So, I mean, how do you invest in something like that, where it it literally becomes this? Okay, this is a super high risk investment, but it's also potentially a very high return investment. Is, is that is that kind of how you balance that? level of craziness yeah we're we're back to that analytics uh comment yeah. i mean you have to be able to break down and define data is um valuation in my opinion is an imperfect science um it's really about uh you know the marketplace and the meaning of the minds you know is this reasonable 
to both parties. And if it is, then there's a transaction. Now, at the same time, if uh, you're consistently, you know, approaching venture capitalists, uh, VC firms or, you know, of the like, uh, you're always going to be overvalued. <laughs> you're always going to okay. say, oh, no, this is too rich. This is too rich. It'll happen consistently. Uh, but if you've got the analytics that work for you and you have a reasonable or, or plausible argument for that valuation, then there are going to be some transactions that just don't take place and others that will. So you're not completely at the whim of a market participant. But if you've made you know, 500 communications and all 500 of them say, are you crazy? This is ridiculously overvalued. Well, then your metrics were probably off. Right. But um, you've got the human components here coming into play and you know, it adds to those chaotic factors. Well, speaking of the human components, what what have you seen or what level of involvement do you have? So when a, when a company's getting rolled up of the actual integra- the actual integration of those two companies. So you've got employees that were wearing the logo of or, or, or uh, I mean, maybe, maybe they just continue to operate under a different brand. Maybe that brand name lives on and they operate under the same hard hats and vests that they were operating on yesterday or B. Hey, we're all one big family and, you know, management's changing. We're changing some key leadership roles out here, but have like, what level of involvement do you have on that end of things? Uh, well, historically, uh, I've had quite a bit, uh, okay. more recently, uh, I take more of that consulting position Okay, where I'll share my opinion and, uh, you know, if there's really something to argue about, then I'll, I'll argue it. But in general, these are, uh, these are corporate actions. These are, uh, corporate strategies and, what is their intention? And just off the cuff or a simple answer to it, if you're talking about, uh, for example, your steel company, well, the steel company is more about uh, B2B interactions. It's more about delivering products to those business clients. So the marketing of the company is less significant than it is for a retailer consumer product. Sure. Yep. So the retailer consumer side, uh, if we're going to integrate operations, and we probably want to have some commonality in the branding. And whenever we do a press release, that press release doesn't represent only the the core business or the acquirer, but it represents all of the acquired as well. So we've got more breadth, more spread, and that marketing dollar can go a lot further just for a, a simple answer. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, especially if you're dealing you're dealing B two C type companies. You, you need more likely than not to have a more unified front versus some right. of these other you know, independent businesses where it's all B2B transactions. It could, it could just be one of those things where like, you know, a, a division of, or a company owned by, or, or because you've got potentially, you know, tons of money tied up into, you know, logos in very unusual places, um, very expensive projects. Right. So I, I, I've got people around me who are very detail oriented. And one of the reasons why I can make things work is because, you know, I'm smart enough to recognize uh, I need people smarter than me. But if you want to get down to the nitty gritty of it, if you've got, you know, 10 acquired companies and nine of them had different names. Then something as simple as ordering those company shirts, you're going to be better off ordering the same shirt for all 10 organizations. So you get down to the detail of it and it does make sense to create common branding, especially in that B2C space. The, the the last thing I want to cover before we uh, before we cut away is the process of taking a company 
to public listing. And so that's something I've, I, I don't think I've ever spoken with anybody about this before. So if we can, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about this, you know, at literally zero level of understanding of the actual, the actual process of what, of what, I mean, I understand the outcome of what, like now, now we could theoretically uh, purchase shares on, you know, on, on a, for a publicly traded company, but what is that process look like when someone's wanting wanting to become a publicly traded company what all do you got to do and i and i know like i realize i know i just cracked a can open of <laughs> like a six hour long answer here so help me start okay. to understand that so uh it can be a lengthy process it can be um it's very lengthy when you work with the wrong people okay <laughs> and oftentimes it doesn't happen when you work with the wrong people okay and you know i'm I'm not special. You know, years ago, I, I made the mistakes uh, and I learned from them and we, we rebuilt Rome a couple times. Um, not talking about a bad deal. I'm talking about just inexperience and it, it, it's pretty costly. You got to have the stomach to stay in it. And same with the CEOs, they have to have the stomach to stay in it because it's a process. Now for us, uh, over the last several years, uh, we've just learned that, uh, Public equity is cheaper and private equity can be very time consuming. You know, even with a venture firm that's running a fund, uh, sometimes their due diligence and they're checking the boxes, it can just take forever. But if your position is a public company, the, the access to that capital is, is much easier, primarily because of that valuation question. Because okay. you can see on the market what the company's worth. This is what the company's doing. But for those reasons, we focus on utilizing the public company as a conduit. It is a tool in the box. It is not an exit event. Something that's always baffled us is, well, now you're at that point in your development where you can access real capital you know, very quickly to build this company. And really the daydream, we've, we've heard it from CEOs, their daydream is to ring the bell on NASDAQ and, and that's their exit. Like, wait a second, you just got to the show and you're leaving. So for us, we view the public company as a conduit, and it's a tool for a company to accelerate their growth. We focus the vast majority of our attention on the reverse merge. We look for dormant companies that are trading on the market. We'll look across all exchanges. We'll even look international because there are some advantages going that way. But uh, we locate that company, and we execute a takeover of that company. With that company in hand, usually... It's a mess. It's got some expenses on it and such, but we do our own diligence to make sure they've had the proper filings and make sure that this company can actually be utilized. Otherwise, not only would the company lose, but we would lose too. Yeah. So we go through excruciating steps to make sure we have a company. We bring it current. Uh, we file necessary paperwork with uh, whichever market it's trading on, file with the SEC or FINRA, the state. And from there, we have a company that is really nothing more than a ticker symbol on the market. What we're looking for is that private company that's going to be a good match for that public company. And we can execute that merger from that point in about a week. So we can have the company on the public market in a week. Wow. Now, the next few steps are actually, all right, what kind of capital do we need? How much do we need? How fast do we need it? Do we need a lockout period so people don't sell shares as soon as they get them? And these are all strategic questions depending on the position of the company and where it plans on being in 3, 6, 12, 24 months. But uh, with an existing public company, the merger process is simple and it's fast. 
Alternatively, we will go through uh, the filing process. We'll go through DTC. We'll go through the application for a ticker symbol. But, you know, now you're talking about a much longer process. In our scenario, uh, we can take over a public company. We can merge a private company. We can register up to 75 million in public shares. As long as those financials are put together, they don't have to be profitable. As long as they're put together and raise $75 million, and we can have that done in ballpark 130, 150 days. Wow. Man, that's, that's, that's crazy, especially the taking a, you know, taking a dormant company and breathing life back into it. Cause I, I, and you say, you know, excruciating detail or I think your words, and I, I can only imagine the level of detail because there's tremendous, there's potentially an insane amount of risk because you don't know, you know, what landmine are you about to step on? And so you're trying, you're trying to understand like, what, what does this company have? What do we need to do? And, and so you're, you're, you're thinking of strategies of how to, of how to best use that company as more or less a shell, right. That you can use as a container for other companies that you may want to bring in, whether it's a portfolio or it's, or it's just a single company, but that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm making sure I'm understanding your, your logic there. Right. Yeah. And, um, I'll give you an idea here. We've got, you know, 51 jurisdictions where we can acquire public companies. We focus on three of them. Okay. The reason we focus on three is because of the, the state law that's in place that uh, expunges corporate debts after a period of time. Oh, okay. Nice. So, so that's one of the ways we, uh, we save ourselves from one of those landmines. Uh, we go through uh, the Novo lists and shareholder lists we look at who's holding what positions and sometimes we'll even make phone calls to see about uh, you know taking their position before anything happens i mean it's it's all part of the construct before we even have conversation with the private company about this movement well but like that's where the in my opinion that's where the victory is done right there is because it, it's like i again i am way oversimplifying i'm way oversimplifying this but it's it's like if you're to buy a, a a distressed home right you're 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 the the actual it, it hasn't been realized yet obviously but but you're winning on at the beginning of the deal because you know like what you've got is something that could be something valuable and you're already starting off on Yes, it may be potentially negative territory, but you but you've got you have the vision for the company in terms of where you want to take it. And so for you, it's like, man, this is just a matter of dotting some, you know, dotting some I's and crossing some T's and linking up a few things here. But this could really, really, really go somewhere. And you're and what you're doing is you're finding something that's undervalued or underpriced right now and and getting and getting a great deal on it. Am I and um am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh I guess you could view it as uh there's upside. You, sure. you could view it that way because yeah. you know, clearly these public companies have shareholders and right. you know, they're, they're not real happy with what management's done. And uh, they're sitting there trading at 20 cents. They're going to be ecstatic when there's a new introduction and there's some momentum behind a, a new technology or you know, uh, an oil and gas play. Whatever the play is, they're going to be excited that there's something happening. Sure. And oftentimes we've seen the stock you know, triple on you know, day two. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, well, Sam, we, we could keep going. I've, I like, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to pick your brain a bit. Thank you for your incredible patience dealing with uh, my novice level questions, but yeah, how can, how can people get in, uh, in touch with you? How can people follow more about what, what you're doing? Uh, probably the easiest way is to visit us at seven P capital.com. That's S E V E N the letter P capital C A P 
I-T-A-L.com, 7pcapital.com. And you can drop us a line or you can take a look at a couple of things we're doing. I think we have a couple of companies uh, listed up there that we're working with. And I think we've got about 20 in the works right now. Is that it right there? Um, I can't Seven, 7pcapital.com? 7pcapital.com. That is it. Yes, All sir. All right, cool, cool. Well, Sam, again, I, I I just want to thank you. This has been it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for thanks for spending some time with me this morning. And uh, yeah, th- this has been great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. All right. Here.